Amen. If you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians 4. That's going to be helpful for us today. And happy, happy uh, Super Bowl day to you. My youngest was really disturbed this morning and disappointed that the Tennessee Volunteers were not in the Super Bowl today. I'll let her know that most of Knoxville is also sad and disappointed that the Knox, that the uh, Tennessee Volunteers are not in the Super Bowl today. <laughs> Ephesians 4 is going to be helpful. We're going through this series, if you're new or maybe you're a guest today, on the greatest story ever told in the gospel. Hoping to show you the different angles and the multifaceted beauty of the best story ever told. It's God's story for mankind, his story of grace and mercy to us through the person of Jesus at his great cost to our great benefit as he comes and he lives with us. He dies among us. He lives again, sends us the Holy Spirit, prepares a better place for us, and he will one day collect his family again to the glory of God. And we get to tell this story, and of course we get to tell it in different ways to different people, right? Even though it's the same good news. And Paul is going to speak to the Ephesian church in this first chapter. And what I want you to pick up in this because it's, it's a pretty chunky piece of scripture right here. I want you to, maybe as we walk through it, pick up on how many times we are in Christ, hidden in Christ, set in Christ. I want you to see how many times it will come up. It's a theme that is important to Paul. Verse 3 of chapter 1, this is the word of the Lord for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. You know, the healthcare company, the insurance company, Cigna, recently released their newest data and research on what we call loneliness, right? Turns out that it's gone up from last year. 60% of adults across all generations report that they are lonely. That's, that's a lot. It's three out of five. When they zoom in to just Generation Z, those are going to be those under the age of 22, 73% report feeling very alone. That is also up considerably from last year. Another research group, YouGov, found that 27% of millennials, 
Some of you are millennials. Those are everyone between the age of 22 and 38. The 27%, 27% of millennials report no close friends. 22 say they have zero friends of any kind. Okay? This is an alarming statistic. Social isolation typically does not spike that high until you get past the age of 75, in which social disconnection is a very serious thing. Being lonely is very common. But now it's a big problem for those who are, well, I mean, they found the age of 30 to be the peak age of loneliness. Same study. 30 to be the peak age. So the bell curve is moving around a little bit to the point where millennials are now more lonely than those who are aging out on the furthest edge of the baby boomer generation. And there's three primary reasons that millennials and those between the ages of 22 and onward actually ascribe to their loneliness. One is what we would call family mobility. It's pretty rare for us to die the same place we were born, right? It's, it's rare. Some of you are Knoxvillians through and through, but it's, it's not that odd to live in four or five different cities before you die, right? I mean, that's why some of you have had friends that you've built really deep relationships with, and they're just not here anymore, right? So it fractured that. The second thing that they say is just that we just get busier. I mean, when, you're, when you are freshly married, you seem to have a lot of time to connect with different people before kids. The first kid comes around, and it slows your roll a little bit, does it not? I mean, and when you do connect, it's usually with people that also have one or two kids. Two kids come around, it slows you down a lot more. Once you get up to three or four kids, it is hard to keep your head above water at that point. Building friendships, that is, that is an uphill chore at that point, right? That was the second. The third is that church attendance is dropping like a rock. And not just church attendance, any group attendance, clubs, leagues, it's all dropping. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And listen, this has serious health consequences, which is why a group like Cigna even cares. Think about that. Large insurance group doing research on loneliness. Why? Because they're having to pay out. I mean, there's medication for this now. In fact, in 2015, there was a large meta-review of over 70 studies that showed that being lonely increases your risk of dying by almost 30%. 70 reviews that if you're lonely, have no friends, it increases your chance of dying by 30%. We are now officially dying from loneliness. This same study actually showed that there was an undeniable correlation. There is an undeniable cause-effect relationship between heavy social media usage and loneliness. This is a fascinating number to me. 71% of heavy social media users, those are those who have three social media apps on their phone or more, 7 out of 10 report loneliness at a drastic rate, at a drastic feel. Seven out of 10 say they're very, very, very lonely. Here's what's fascinating. It was 50% last year, 50%. The very applications telling us that we have a lot of friends and a lot of followers are actually amplifying how lonely we feel, right? I mean, you might have them on your phone, Strava, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. They're gonna tell you that you're seen. They're gonna tell you that you're heard. They're not gonna convince you that you're known. They can't do that. But here's the thing. I mean, you didn't need all those statistics. You didn't need them. You already knew all of this. You might not have known the numbers, but you intuit that mankind in general, and I think we can all argue the church 
suffers severe loneliness. Severe loneliness. That's just not news. Everyone in here today is either very lonely, lives with someone who is very lonely, does life with someone who is very lonely, lives next to somebody, works with people who are very lonely. We all know this. Statistically, 33% of you have no friends. A friend is like a unicorn, something mythical that exists that you've never seen before. Or as soon as you get a close relationship, as soon as you start to build some deep intimacy, they have to move to North Carolina, or they drop you, or they hurt you, or they have kids. I mean, how are those high school relationships, by the way? Right? You think in a world full of cities that are full of people, that just more people would fix this. But that's not true. More people, even different people, can't fix the kind of loneliness that we all really feel. If you were to drive 45 minutes in any direction from this location where we're at right now, you'll cover 1.5 million people. That's a lot of people, right? The addition of people, obviously, is not the panacea for loneliness, or no one would be lonely. And yes, it is affecting your health. It's not good that you are alone. That's why God says it in the garden. It's not good that man is alone. So I'm gonna create for him a helper, a helpmate, perfect for him, fit for him. And so he creates woman, and the tightest connection ever made exists. But then the fall comes, and it edits everything, even how we interact with each other, right? That's why loneliness enters the picture for the very first time. And then every page in your Bible from that point on will contain stories of lonely people trying to be less lonely and oftentimes breaking each other to get that, that existential itch scratched inside of all of them. They're trying to fix this problem of loneliness. And it's not just a horizontal loneliness, it's a vertical one as well, right? It's not just loneliness with each other that we feel, it's a loneliness before God that we feel. In fact, I'd argue it begins with God, right? The average person in Knoxville who believes that there is a God, whether they're in a church today or not, I don't even care about that. The average person that says, I believe that there is a God, will also probably say, if they're being brutally honest, that that God does not love them, not individually. Because it is possible for us to love things in plural or groups of things and not really adore a piece of that plurality. We all do it. I love college football, right? I hate the Missouri Tigers. Hate them, right? If you're from Missouri, welcome to Legacy Church. I'm glad you're here, but you got to admit that football team. Come on, Al. <laughs> I hate them. How many of you love barbecue, but then, all, but, but then you see the argument between the states on which barbecue is better than the, than the rest, right? I love barbecue, but I don't know what North Carolina is trying to do down there and calling it what they're calling it, but I love barbecue. And that's kind of how we can feel. We could feel like we're a part of something that is loved, but individually, when we're parsed out of it, when we're pulled out of it, we're not adorable at all. Like we've made the winning team and we've got the winning jersey on, but we're sitting the bench. Or if God does love us, it's because technically he has to, right? It's more of a tolerating love, but he certainly doesn't like us. He doesn't like us. He's not that really excited about us. If you're at a party and Jesus comes walking in, he'll hang out with people, but not you, right? So to amplify things even more is the fact that we feel lonely 
as we carry this giant load of sin and failure on our shoulders everywhere we go. We carry this load of bad performances and the shame that comes with it, things that we've done, things, hey, things that were done to us. That makes it hard to connect, doesn't it? Some of you, you've suffered some great things. It makes it hard to connect to people. I mean, there's just not a relationship you have in your life that you didn't carry some bags into it, some heavy baggage. So what do we do? As a response, we budget our intimacy. We'll build relationships, but only to the level where people can't see our ugliness. Because the fear of being authentically ourselves, being who we really are, for everyone to see and then being rejected, that is far more terrifying than the prospect of being lonely. Right? It's just easier to be lonely than it is to be rejected, to be truly known and rejected. Right? Some of you, you already know what I'm talking about because nobody knows you. Because you won't let them see who you really are. Your fear of being rejected is far too big. That's why, by the way, as a side note, that's why you have what's called buyer's remorse. Buyer's remorse is this natural thing that occurs in us after we make large expenditures, right? Buy a house, you buy a car. The next day you wake up and you're like, should I have really bought that? I'm not so sure. You start to feel a little bit of remorse, even if it's a good purchase, even if you should have made it. It's because of the size of it that causes that buyer's remorse. That's why you feel buyer's remorse after like a calm group or a DNA setting or a get real session with somebody and you kind of dump some stuff out on the table that you don't typically let people see. And even if they handle you well, what do you think in your mind the next day when you wake up? Man, I overshared. I shouldn't have said so much, right? You're wondering how they see you. You're wondering what they think about you. You're kind of nervous the next time you bump into that same person. That's what's going on. That's the mechanism that's cranking inside of you. It's the fear of rejection when you are truly yourself. We don't really care about being rejected when we're not ourselves. That's why when people bash you on social media, people that barely know you, you're like, nah, whatever. But when someone rejects you who really knows you, that hurts more. It hurts more. Here's the truth. You are right to suspect that you are going to get dropped. You will get dropped. Deep relationships that comes from risking yourself upon others. I know that's not the best sales pitch for community. But if you do it right, and you build in a tight proximity with others, I mean just living in such a way that people know the authentic you, who you really are, can I just say that rejection is right around the corner, and you'll feel all the teeth of it? That's there. So listen, if you walk into rooms like this or living rooms or Super Bowl parties and you just really pray and hope that people see only your best side because you fear rejection so much, today's going to be very helpful for you, okay? If you wonder if God really enjoys you or if he just likes you and tolerates you, I think today is also going to be helpful for you. Listen, I think this is going to be a helpful passage in an aspect of the gospel for those of you that think relationship is optional, that you don't really need it, that you could live without it. You don't have to have it. You know that God says it's not to be, that, that to be alone is not good. You see him say it in Genesis, and you can maybe even agree. You see that the church was created by the blood of Jesus, that his work and his action for us creates this thing where we're in tight relationship with each other. You see that. You even see in the Bible that Jesus himself is excited to be intimately in connection with others. You see that. But for you, it's not powerful. For you, it's not useful. And maybe it's because you've been hurt. Maybe you're just not going to let that happen again. 
I get that. I get that. I've been, hey, I got bruises and scars too. It really slows you down before you jump into the next thing, doesn't it? Maybe you look around and nobody is good enough to connect to. Maybe they don't look enough like you. Maybe you don't want to feel responsible for other people when they dump all their stuff on the table and you can see it. Maybe you don't want to have anything to do with that. It's a lot of work, you know. Maybe you don't want to feel obligated to turn around and do the same thing out of reciprocation. By the way, that's why you get nervous in rooms that get real, real fast, right? Everyone starts sharing, and then it sounds like they're oversharing, and then it's like it's going around the room, and then you start doing math, and you realize it's coming to you. So you find a reason to go to the bathroom or get a phone call or something like that. Nervous. Listen, in this series, we're going to look at the various angles and the shades of the gospel. We see that the good news is formatted and given to us in such a way that it frees us from the tyranny of loneliness. Frees us from the tyranny of loneliness. Because part of the gospel good news for you and me is that he has given us himself. He's given us himself. It was God that fixes our problem so that we are not alone anymore. And it's God that shows us that he is intimate with us and deeply intimate with us, knowing full well who we really are. Knowing the authentic us and still loving us. I mean, when we look at Ephesians 3, or 1, verse 3 through 14, we see something that holds the entire gospel together and makes it good news for us. It's what scholars, it's what theologians call union with Christ. You've maybe read books that have that phraseology. Maybe you've heard a pastor say it, union with Christ. That's what we're looking at today. Because when it comes to salvation, all the doctrines flow through this one. This is it. This is the big one. This is the umbrella that kind of sits on top of all of it. Union with Christ is the literal center of everything that we call the good news. Lewis Smedes, who's a professor and an author, he says it better than I do. He says the center and circumference He says, the union with Christ is the center and the circumference of all authentic human existence. I couldn't agree more with him. I don't even think we could be holistically healthy and human without this union with Christ, where we are in him and he is in us. I mean, this is the very heartbeat and core to Paul's theology. In fact, now that you're going to see it today and we've read it in Ephesians, you'll actually see it everywhere in the New Testament. Watch. Every time he speaks to it over 80 times, you'll start seeing it in different letters. There it is again. He says, in him, in Jesus, in God, and you'll know what it means. I think we miss it because we just don't typically talk like this. I kind of categorize that type of language under ancient things that ancient people said in ancient ways, in him, kind of like thy or beloved. I get it. I understand what the word is. We just don't use it anymore, right? And we typically don't think of ourselves in terms of being united in people. That's odd. I'm with people. I'm next to a person. I'm walking behind a person. I'm in a car with a person. But united in them, that doesn't make any sense. We don't talk like that. This is unique for our relationship with God. In fact, in John 3.16, which you'll see all over signs today at the Super Bowl, I'm sure of it, the Greek for that is literally Whoever believes into him should not perish. Into him. When God saves us, he saves us into himself. Into himself. This is very important. Because this is why. Everything that is Christ's becomes ours. And everything that is ours 
becomes Christ's. We are united. United. We become one. We receive all the heavenly treasures. How does he say it? He says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What is he talking about? This is what he brings to the table. Election, grace, redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. That's just in that one passage. He brings quite a bit to the table. What do we bring to the table? A dowry of debt (laughs) and decay and brokenness and bad manners, cluelessness, loneliness, even death. That's what we bring. He brings his best. We bring our worst. He takes our worst. He gives us his best. This is union with Christ. It's union with Christ. Listen, when I married Paula, when I married my bride, we became one in many ways. Debts, burdens, joys, benefits. I brought my weird habits. I had a bunch of them. I still do. I brought my wrecked history, all my emotional baggage, and she owned it. They became hers. They're hers. It was never a situation where it was like, that's Luke's stuff to deal with. That's Luke's. She didn't build some wall. That's his stuff. It became her stuff and vice versa. When we were at the altar, we shared all assets and liabilities, all of it. We were united. And listen, if you disagree with this form of marriage, it's why your marriage stinks. Let me just tell you. I'm going to say it again so you don't misunderstand me. If you think it's healthy to build partitions and walls in your marriage, that's your thing, this is my thing. That is your money, this is my money. That's your room, this is my room. That is your hobby, this is my hobby. That's your future, this is my future. That's your account, this is my account. That's why your marriage struggles. Because you've built it opposite of the very gospel that your marriage is supposed to to image. Totally different sermon. I'm going to stop there. But our union with Christ, I mention it because it is actually more miraculous and fantastic than even our marriage. This is, this is fascinating to me. Jesus, as a groom, the greater groom, took a bride who is the church, and this church brings nothing to the table but debt. There is an asymmetry to our relationship with Christ, a cosmic asymmetry. We did not improve Jesus' standing. And this is what this gives us, our union with Christ. It means we're not far from Christ. We're not divided from him or separate from him. We are in him. Listen, this is good news for you. You are never alone before God. This is what it means. We are never, ever alone before God. Never live alone. We never suffer alone. We never die alone. We're not even resurrected alone. We're never alone. We're not away from him. We're not under him. We're not behind him. We're not next to him. We're not ahead of him. We're not separate from him. We're not distant from him. We are in him. We are in him. And it's only because of this union that the gospel is anything close to good news. If you take that out, we are still separate from God, alone before God. That's not good news at all. But we will reject this solution to our loneliness oftentimes. And then we end up denying this gospel. We do a couple other things too. I mean, if we reject his solution to our loneliness, then we're left trying to fix it on our own. And that's going to break people. That's going to break relationships, even good ones. I mean, everyone in here walked in with a deep hunger to be deeply known. We all did. That's normal, by the way. You were created to have that. And it's deep. It's insatiable. And it can only actually be met by God himself. Not even your spouse is going to be able to know you as deeply 
as that longing requires. Even if you have a marriage for the ages, right? Your spouse is only going to know you so well. There's always going to be a level of being underknown or misunderstood. I mean, I don't find myself in, in marital situations as a pastor unless there is a situation where someone feels misheard, misunderstood, not totally known, not totally believed, not totally trusted. Even good marriages cannot deliver this. And when we attempt to secure this level of knowledge from people, we break them. We break them because we're trying to get them to hold a weight that only God is really able to hold. Because we are not created to be each other's primary point of intimacy. That only comes from our union with God. Let me just say, your best marriage, oh man, listen, your best marriage is going to be found when your spouse loves God more than your spouse loves you. That's your best marriage. You should be second place. You should be second place. Because when your spouse loves God, enjoys God, and is known by God even more than you, then they won't require it from you. They're satisfied. They're satisfied. It won't break a marriage in half. So lead your spouse to love you second, not first. This is why when those around us can't deliver this intimacy that we demand, this intimacy that we require, we end up looking odd. We end up looking accusatory. Angry, withdrawn, depressed. I mean, seriously, if you're, if you're just brutally honest with yourself, you have to see this in yourself, right? When we don't get what we want from others, we break out in hives. We, be, we, we all have an intolerance to rejection of sorts. This is what it sounds like, too, just in everyday life. I texted them, and it took them like three days to get back with me. Oh, my God. It took three days for them to get back with me on that text, meaning that you feel demeaned because of the lack of speed in which they required a response to you. You needed them to see you a certain way, and it was interpreted by a speed of a text. Or you leave a moment. Everyone else got to talk in that moment but me. I didn't get to talk in that moment. I just had to listen the whole time, meaning you, you had, your audience was stolen from you. You didn't get to be the center of a room. How about this one? They didn't like my post. Why didn't they like my post? They liked that guy's post. I know they were online. I know they saw the post, but they didn't like the post, right? It sounds petty when you say it out loud. How about this one? No one understands. No one understands me. No one gets me. What do you really mean when you say that, by the way? Right? They hear you. They get you. They're just not worshiping you. They're not worshiping you. How about this one? I'm leaving because I can't connect. They couldn't do what God was meant to do, so I'm leaving leaving this marriage, leaving this comm group, leaving this DNA group, leaving this church, this city, this family, leaving, 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 leaving. Listen, these longings to be known for who you are, to be truly accepted for who you are, to be authentic, truly you, those are good longings, but they will be, unless met by God, they will become demands that you place on other people to feel less lonely. By the way, is this already happening to you? Is it already happening to you? Are you already suffering loneliness that comes when people can't do what God alone can do? Are you demanding that others make you feel less lonely? Are you already blowing up relationships? Because listen, I, could, I can be an incredibly close friend to a few of you. I could be a good friend to a few more. I could be a Jesus to none of you. Not even my wife. Not even my wife. 
I can't possibly meet her God-shaped needs, nor can anyone in this room, nor can anyone around you. I think the deepest loneliness cannot be solved by creation. Trying to do so and deny the gospel will just blow people up. I mean, listen, listen, we have some really good calm groups in this church, by the way. I'm going to promise you a couple things. We have some really good calm groups in this church, around a 12 or something like that. So good that a couple of them are getting sizable enough where they have to start new ones. This is what that means. It means that they did a good job with relationships because more people were coming than were leaving. Relationships are being born. They're being built. Right? But because they're about to plant another missional community, they're starting to feel this thing that we call the gospel goodbye. <laughs> Not goodbye forever, but goodbye to this, this thing that we've had, this thing that we share. You guys are going across town, and we're staying here because we just ran out of room. Right? This gospel goodbye. It means we did something right. It hurts because good relationships were built well. Even if you went to one of these great healthy missional communities, and I predict you'd build some really good healthy relationships, even if you did that, they won't be able to meet this God-shaped need. They won't be able to scratch that itch. Even if you meet your best friend, even if you meet your best friend in that group and you stay there for 10 years, even if you do, they won't be able to meet that need. In fact, I will tell you what will happen instead. You could prepare to be injured, hurt. Let me just promise you again, The more you do life correctly in a gospel-shaped manner, the more you'll get bruised. In fact, if you're not getting bruised, you don't have any friends. Let's be honest. If you don't have any big bruises, if you've never been injured, that thing you call a friend is not a friend. If you've never had to reconcile, if you've never had to risk yourself, if you've never had to, to listen to them tell you their story, and then you minister to them, and then nurse them through the odd feeling the very next day. If you've never had to do that, you don't have a deep friend. I can promise you it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. We are rooms full of broken people that break each other, even me. If I haven't failed you yet, stick around. I will. (laughs) I'll forget your kid's name. I won't text you back, right? I'll be in a bad mood one of these days. I'll hurt your feelings. This is who we are. So what do we do with all of this? What hope do we have? What do we do? How do we risk ourselves knowing ahead of time that we'll be dropped, knowing that we'll be hurt and injured and rejected and abandoned? How can we escape this smothering loneliness? How can we feel the profit from this thing that Luke is calling union with Christ? How do we take it from theology out of a big dusty book and make it something that really gives us peace and satisfaction, truly, truly brings intimacy to us. And I think it all starts with knowing that we are not acceptable to God on the basis of our state of mind or how we feel at that moment in time. We're not. We're acceptable because we're hidden in Christ. We're regarded as lovingly as God looks at the son and says, I love him. Just as lovingly as the father looks at the son and says, I love and accept, that's how he sees you. This is crazy. I'm going to say it again. God sees you as he sees his own son. This is partly what it means to be hidden in Christ. It's so crazy it sounds heretical just to hear me say it, right? Oh my gosh, can you hear Luke? He said that the father loves us as much as he loves the son. That's bizarre. That can't be right. I'm looking that up. Where did he get that, you know? 
And this is why you feel that way. Because we, we traditionally, we build this hierarchy, this, this pinnacle of love that God gives out. And of course, Jesus is number one, right? Jesus is the number one most beloved. And then number two, I don't know, I'm going to throw some nit. Paul, probably number two, right? Three, might be David on a good day. David's had some bad days too, so maybe he's like number six, okay? <laughs> probably put Moses in there. I'm sure Moses, Abraham's got to be up there, right? Elijah's always bitter, He's probably like number eight or nine. But, but when it comes down to you, you're like number 20,000 and two, right? Or 220,000 and two. That's how we see how he looks at us. But he loves you as much as he loves his own son. Can you believe that? Why? Because you're hidden in him. You are in Christ. In Christ. No matter how you feel, your performance cannot edit God's approval of you. This was determined before you could ever perform. That's what he says. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's what he means in Ephesians when he says that, right? Not only centuries ago or millennia ago or eons ago, but before Genesis 1-1, before light, before electrons started to spin, God saw fit that you would not be alone before him, but in fact, would be in him and you would share all of the treasures of heaven that he has to bear and he would take all that you bring to the table and bring it to himself. I don't understand this and I agree with David, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. God does not assess you based on your good nurture over your bad nature. He doesn't look and say good deeds, bad deeds. That's not how he appraises you. It is proximity to Jesus. Are you in Jesus or are you alone before Jesus? Are you hidden in Christ or are you hidden from Christ? That is how he forms his judgment, not after deeds, not after deeds at all. This is important because it's in our bad days that we feel the most lonely, isn't it? It's in our bad days that we feel the most alone with our fellow person and with God himself, alone, hidden away. But it's on your worst days that you need to know that you're in union with Christ. Not in just your bad day, but in your worst day, your darkest night, whenever you were thinking your darkest thing, doing your darkest thing. It is at that moment that all of those dark things that you thought did and thought about doing, he took to himself, carried them to the cross, and held them to the cross. Why? Because you shared them with him. Because you're united in him. Assets and liabilities. He brought them to bear, and he took them. When you say something bad or think something worse, Jesus held it on the cross. That's what it means to be in union with him. God the Son, and this is even beautiful. God the Son experienced all of my loneliness, even my death. Human death became his because we shared it with him. That's why he died on the cross. Consider that. And in the same union, we share his resurrection because he gives it to us. That's fascinating to me. This is, this is what Paul means when he tells the Corinthians in, in 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam, that's us being united in the bloodline of Adam, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus' resurrection and your resurrection from the dead are the same reality. Certainly they're separated by space and, and time, okay? We get that. That was in 30 AD, raised from the dead. But he is the firstborn from the dead. Your resurrection is going to be the same. It's the same. It's the same reality. It's the same resurrection. 
He's just the firstborn, but it's the firstborn of a big family. This is why we see in Romans 6, this is a beautiful passage too. Romans 6, this will help you see it a little bit more clearly. In verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is what all of this means for us today. It means you no longer need to suffer loneliness. It died on the cross. Your loneliness died on the cross. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is taking your loneliness where you feel away from God, apart from God, alone before God, and he's carrying it on his own shoulders. He's feeling the loneliness that we were all meant to feel, and he carried it himself. Friends, listen, if your friends leave you, your best friends leave you, your spouse leaves you, good or bad, if you are totally abandoned and left in this world, you are never alone in this world. He is not just there with you. He is in you. He is in you. And not just you, but the authentic you, the real you. And he accepts the authentic you. He knows you deeply. He he knows what your intentions are. He knows how you were misunderstood. He knows what was done to you. He knows how you were hurt. He knows what your hopes and dreams were, the ones that worked and the ones that didn't. He knows your aches and what makes you sad, what makes you nervous. He knows what lights your heart up. He knows what your failures are. He knows why you're hiding them. He knows the shame you feel. He knows what you thought. He knows what you did. He knows what you said. He knows everything. He deeply knows. And he accepts you. You're not alone. This grants us some incredibly valuable freedoms, right? One is that you're free to not destroy others anymore to get this kind of intimacy. You can't get that kind of intimacy from your fellow man. You can't. So that means you're free to serve and listen rather than demand and require, right? You're free to be last, free to be unconsidered, free to be dropped, abandoned, rejected. You're free. And as much as those things hurt, They don't destroy you because you didn't need it to begin with. You didn't require it. It also means you're free to risk yourself upon others. Now, that one ought to make you nervous. Does that make you nervous? I mean, if you've been burned before, it makes you nervous, right? If you've got a past, it makes you nervous. It makes me nervous. Union with Christ means you are free to be laid bare before those who are close to you. Because what can they take from you? Not intimacy. Not intimacy, you already have that. Your life is no longer your own. You're you're in union with the royal son of God himself. You're never alone. Listen, if you remind yourself often that you are never alone, you will find healthy relationships. 
But if you deny this gospel and you require creation to lift that weight and meet those demands, you will just go and flit from broken relationship to broken relationship, blowing people up all the time. Here's a challenge for you. The next DNA group you're in or the next heart-to-heart you're in with somebody, the next kneecap-to-kneecap moment you have with somebody, go ahead and put something out there. It'll be hard. This is how you can start. I'll help you. Sound like this. Hey, can I be honest and tell you something that I've not told anyone in a long time? Just say that and then fill in the blank. Hey, can I just kind of throw something out there I don't really tell people about and then fill in the blank? Hey, can I tell you something that you really need to know about me and then fill in the blank? That's hard. That, that is hard. You know what's even harder? Being okay with the fact that they might look at you and be bored. L- the look on their face of not knowing what to do with that information. The look on their face of, well, well, I guess we could pray about it. Of feeling exposed like that. Of, of risking yourself in those moments. Now that is hard. That is hard. And listen, as missionaries, and we are a church of missionaries, union with Christ is helpful when we're walking alongside with people that are far from Christ and they're trying to interpret all of their relationships and, and those relationships are broken. Can we just agree with the fact that the people that you love that are far from Christ, if they have relationships, they're not working. I'm just going to tell you this right now. They're not working because they don't have Christ in the middle of any of them. Why would they work? There's no Holy Spirit. Why, why would they work? They shouldn't. They're not going to. But they don't know what to think of that. They don't know what to do with that. You can help them. You can help them interpret that. Mankind suffers severe loneliness, and it's growing in number. So we can tell them how this itch that they've been trying to scratch is, A, it's designed by God. B, it can only be delivered by God. Right? And we have a gospel to, to walk it out, to show us. Because no, they are not one best friend away from that need being met. They are not one more marriage away from that need being met. They're not one more drink away from that need being met. With all the people around them, it's not going to, marriages won't fix it, cities won't fix it, churches won't fix it. This is something that is only the size of God. The good news for them is that God, the gospel for them is that God is really good at taking Our worst, bringing his best, giving us his best, and then removing our worst for solving our deep loneliness problem. I mean, just think. Ask them, what relationships do you have right now that are broken? Like, what's the most broken relationship you have right now? And as they talk about it, and they will, as they talk about ask them, why is it broken? Like, who needs to budge in that? Who is not getting a need met? Who's demanding something and, and coming up short in that whole thing? What's fractured? Who's breaking who? What are they looking for? Can they see it? Can you show them? Union with Christ becomes helpful in your gospel fluency as a missionary, particularly when it comes to the person's demand for intimacy and being deeply known. This is a helpful angle of the gospel. And listen, maybe you're here today and that's you. Maybe you're far from Jesus and you feel very, very, very alone. I understand that. Been there. In the wise words of Solomon back in Proverbs, he says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, 
but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, right? You know what that's like. If you're here and you, and you consider yourself far from Christ, you know what it feels like to have a lot of companions, but no one that really sticks close by. I, I don't know if Solomon knew this when he wrote that or not, if, whether, if that was meant to be a forecast to Christ, but we do have one that sticks closer than even a brother who will never leave us alone, ever leave us alone. Jesus will take what you bring, and he will bring blessings for you to take. And he shares his life as we share our worst. But this requires a death to this world. That's why Paul says in Colossians, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And then he says this, interestingly, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. With Christ in God. Right now, you're just hiding from Christ. To be hidden in Christ means to refuse the things of this world and trust in this one union, this one union that was bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. If that's you, I'd love to talk to you today. If that's you, I'd love for you to meet somebody today and maybe work that out, this loneliness that you feel, this demand for intimacy, and maybe this God who knows you, the authentic you. I'd love for you to talk to me or talk to one of our pastors here. I'm here. Matt's in the back. Matt, raise your hand. Matt's in the back. He'd love to talk to you. Go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to get us out. And what we're about to do is we're about to take communion. For those of you who might be new here, communion is something that we open up for anyone who is a believer. You don't even have to be a part of legacy. If you're a believer and you trust in Christ as your Savior, we just invite you to take the elements if not, and you're here just checking things out, you're maybe far from Christ, we ask you that you take the gospel instead and meditate on that. Chew on the gospel instead. But let me just, before we do this, and before I read a passage to, to end us here, just even consider the communion. Listen, when you take those elements, the, the bread, broken body, and the juice, the blood spilt, and you take it into yourself, that is emblematic of us being united with each other. Okay, Now, we're not Catholic, and we're not deep Anglican, where we might believe that as soon as you put those elements in your mouth, they become the true blood and body of Christ. We don't believe that. We believe that you know once it hits your digestive system, it's still Trader Joe's bread and Welch's grape juice. That's what it is down here, okay? But, but let's not mistake the symbolism and the beauty of something like that, where we feast on Christ, and we are deeply united even to that level. So as you take the table today, as you pray, as you reconcile, as you thank the Lord, as you celebrate, as you come back and sing, as we do that over the, the next three or four songs, I want you to consider who you're breaking. I want you to consider this, this genuine longing that you have and whether you've allowed and pursued Christ to meet that longing in you. And I'm going to read this psalm to you, and then I'm going to pray us out. This is King David. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Father, I thank you that not just for us, but for the Chinese church, from those across town, everyone, 
that is in you. Lord, that the best part about our good news is the fact that we're hidden in you, no longer hidden away from you. And I thank you, Father, that you know me deeper than anyone's ever known me, and yet you love me more than anyone has ever loved me. And I thank you for the people in this room, Lord, that you are able to, to, to know us to that depth of a level, even our, our deepest parts, even the things that we don't even know about ourselves, you know intricately, and you still never leave us. And I thank you because of what you've done on the cross and because what your gospel spells out for all of us, that we are no longer alone. I'm not alone. And I can't change that by my actions. I thank you that for your sons and your daughters, we can't misbehave our way out of the family tree. We're not thrown to the side. We're not discarded because we just, we misbehaved a little too much. We just can't perform like we need to. But you draw us close, that we are in you, that you took our worst, you brought your best, you shared your assets as we shared our liabilities. We don't just have union with you. You have union with us. And you took our death and you took our loneliness and expressed it on the cross. And we get every heavenly blessing. Lord, you're so good to us. And so as we pray and as we sing and as we take communion and as we celebrate and go and party later on today, Lord, that you would show us how we are not alone, that our friends may leave us, our family may leave us, we might be in some dungeon, chained, and still never alone. <laughs> in our dying breath, we are not alone. In our very first time to open our eyes in a new heavens and a new earth, we won't be alone. In our deepest suffering, when we feel so utterly alone, we are not alone. We don't do anything alone. You are in us. So we thank you and we love you passionate for you, Lord, and we thank you for your passion for us, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.